This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Muffso Food, Franklin. The annual Muffso conference starts virtually this week, but really kicks into gear next week. It's going to be a virtual conference, as I said. Last year, we were in Denver. What was the, what was the food highlight of your trip to Denver last year for Muffso? I'm not even sure I exactly remember. It's kind of a, a food blackout. There's every vendor for every restaurant in the country is there with a booth set up with their their wares cookies meatballs chicken wings chocolate fountains i mean i think the chocolate fountain last year was probably my uh my highlight but there's i can't even remember i probably first off i gained probably between 13 and 17 pounds and i I just ate consistently every hour in the hour for about a week i will miss it this year joe i will miss it there's no way to replicate that experience i remember the um last year having all the uh, not all, but you know, big chunk of the vendors with the impossible burgers and the vegetable-based meats and all those new meat you know trends uh, were, were showing their wares. But you had mentioned earlier the donut wheel, the wheel of donuts. That was something. Google sponsored it. They had a whole wall of donuts with pegs on it with donuts. I mean, there was probably 800 donuts up there. And that was just one booth. That was one booth of like, I don't know, 300 booths. Amazing, amazing experience. If Carson were there, it would have been he would have been climbing up on the peg wall getting those donuts. So that, that would have been quite a quite a visual. And speaking of Muffso's menu, Franklin, we're on the menu this year for the virtual month-long Muffso conference. Will be throughout most of the month of October. Various panels and speakers, and we're on the menu as well, Franklin. What is our title? What is the title of our our session? Yeah, this coming Tuesday, 2.45 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be presenting The New Normal, Labor Relations, Reputation Considerations, and the 2020 Elections. The Align team will walk us through the political, cultural, and social strife we are experiencing that will impact brand, bottom lines, and the ability to sustain and grow your business going forward. That's it, Joe. Educating people. So come join us, y'all, Tuesday, 2.45 p.m. Uh, It's going to be a great little session. On that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the U.S. House passed their long-awaited relief bill this week, and while it's unlikely to pass the Senate in its current form, it is noteworthy because Democratic leaders championed and included many of the Independent Restaurant Coalition's priorities, while chains and franchisees were deliberately left out in the cold. Is there a political divide developing in the industry that may reshape our traditional approach to advocacy? We'll discuss that and the ramifications for operators. And while the Trump administration has suspended many obama era regulations regarding corporate diversity numbers and corresponding pay equity, more and more companies are disclosing that data voluntarily. We'll take a look at those trend lines and where that conversation may be headed. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, some news out of D.C. this week. The uh, House seems to have finalized. Uh, They have not voted on it yet as of this taping, but they have finalized their version of the HEROES Act, uh, which is a COVID relief package, has a bunch of increased unemployment benefits in it, but it's got $120 billion in grants for restaurant, bars, and food trucks. 
as well as including another round of paycheck protection loans targeted for small, you know, hardest hit small businesses. Franklin, the Independent Restaurant Coalition has endorsed uh, this particular version of the bill. What can you tell us about it that's going on there? Yeah, well, rewinding the tape a little bit, there's two versions, has been two versions of the Restaurants Act bill, the House version and the Senate version. And the House version does not cover chains, franchise brands, or corporate chains. And the Senate version does. And so the expectation, I think, all along is, you know, somewhere between the House and Senate negotiations or the the hope of at least the Restaurant Association has been that element of the House bill will go away and and the relief fund will be open to to all restaurants and, and hospitality employers. We talked about this months ago, this emerging dynamic when the Independent Restaurant Coalition kind of charged onto the scene, got the member which is Earl Blumenauer, yeah, to introduce the legislation on their behalf. We mentioned how this was not particularly helpful to be splitting the industry up at a time when we should be coming together while all other industries are coming together and advocating that they need relief. Uh, you don't see as much dissension within other industries on this. Here's a real problem for us, and we see that here. The House bill was approved, did not occlude chains. Now, it's not going anywhere as of right now. It's just another kind of uh, messaging bill. Um, the White House and the Senate can't can't get the votes to advance anything in the Senate that's this large. So yeah, that it is what it is, Joe. But I think long term, the challenge here is that we have policymakers viewing the restaurant industry in a very binary way between chains that they're being told have access to capital and don't need assistance during these times and independents that do. And I think that creates all kinds of public policy and issue management challenges in the future. You mean independents that don't have access to that kind of capital, but it does seem, it does seem quite intentional to omit chains, to omit franchisees. They seem to have no, no, sympathy at all for the one or two or three unit owner of a large chain, a Burger King franchisee or Wendy's franchisee, whatever it may be. It seems quite intentional. Frank, let me ask you a political question. If you didn't know better and you were just kind of looking from the sidelines, it seems like the independent restaurant coalition, some of these other coalitions have this occurring favor with House Democrats and legacy chains and other and the larger brands and traditional are having to find comfort with Senate Republicans. Is there a, a political fissure? I mean, a blue-red, is there a political fissure developing in this industry? There has been for a while in my mind. And this is the first time we've kind of seen this dynamic really playing out at the national level, at the federal level. But we've seen this dynamic playing out in metro areas for a long time. you know, And that's the backbone of the IRC is a lot of these metro areas around the country. And that fissure where you've got the celebrity chefs, I, I don't want to broad... Well, they're broad brushing, you know, arbitrarily 20 restaurants, you're in or you're out. But so I I guess I'll do the same here. You know, celebrity chefs that can sell hamburgers for $22 a pop are, they have different models. They're different business models. They're, they have different cost models and they are, uh, you know, budding up in some jurisdictions and advocating for higher wage and benefit structures, mandates at the local level and winning approval for their other issues like delivery fee caps, for instance, right? Or some other issue. And that's that's a dynamic. So this dynamic has been happening at the local level. It's now happening at the federal level. And it's going to create a feedback loop where it's going to reinforce this dynamic 
that's continuing to occur at the local level. And I have no doubt in 2021 and 2022, if we see this dynamic continue to speed up, that we're going to have more discriminatory local wage and hour and labor mandates where we're going to have paid leave and minimum wage mandates that treat chains differently than treat independents. I mean, we've already seen some of that, particularly in the hotel sector, but not so much in the restaurant sector. And I have a feeling that this dynamic will will speed that up over time. I don't think that's good for the industry at all. It's definitely not good for the workers in the industry, but to be continued, I think the industry needs to pull together right now and use this opportunity around relief to flex its collective muscle. And I think that that's going to help in these other state and local jurisdictions where there are similar fights and similar conversations that need to be had. So a lot of the coverage had uh, Sean Kennedy from the National Restaurant Association, who was uh, kind enough to join us a few weeks ago. You know, he said, look, you know, it's, it's a great start. There's a lot that's in this bill and, you know, it's a great start. But, you know, all kinds of restaurants are being hurt and you're, you're kind of picking winners and losers here. And we need to take a more, I don't put words in his mouth, but we need to, to take a more holistic supporting and, and providing relief to this industry. Franklin, you know, if you're, let's talk about politics for a second. You know, if National Restaurant Association, PAC, or other industry associations, they're going to be, you know, a lot of pressure on the NRA potentially to be more bipartisan in their giving. If they've got House Democrats running restaurant relief bills for a bunch of the industry, it's going to put traditional trade associations in kind of a a political pickle, wouldn't you think? I would think so. There was a Restaurants for Biden coalition that launched last week, by the way, that was just it's kind of an independent effort, I think run by independents, but I, I really didn't look at it that closely. But yeah, I, so we, we have this other dynamic side by side, completely separate and apart from this industry conversation that is emerging where a lot of business associations from the business roundtable to the U.S. Chamber are saying we've got to start valuing and putting a political value on bipartisanship and, and working together and trying to stretch out and expand that moderate middle from which most good policy comes. And, you know, a lot of these associations, whether they're saying it explicitly or not, you know, the implication is that they've gotten too married to the Republican Party and maybe too married to even kind of the right wing of the Republican Party. And so they need to push back to the center. And whether it's moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats, they want to reward bipartisanship. We've seen the chamber, you know, has been working on this for at least a year or two now. And, you know, every three months, there's big headlines around. In fact, there was this week due to a, a staffer departing saying the chamber has lost its way. But I think a lot of associations are revisiting their political spending and their political giving and engagement strategies, and they're trying to recalibrate it to make it more bipartisan and to touch some Democrats that maybe in past cycles would have not been included. And I think in the context now, I'm pivoting back outside the industry, back to the industry. I think in the context of the industry fissure that's emerging between independents and chains, I think that's more important than ever that the industry associations, whether it's NRA or IFA or NCCR or the state associations, I think it's more important than ever that we're uh, we're approaching things in a bipartisan fashion so that it's not the cool kids, the independents and the progressive Democrats, and then the quote unquote race to the bottomers and, you know, the keep government as small as you can so you can throw it in a bathtub and drown it Republicans, you know, and we have this partisan fissure 
within the industry. I don't think that's helpful to the industry long term for anybody. So I do I to your point, Joe, I do think some of that partisan fissure is widening. And I, I think as an industry, we would be wise to ensure it gets no wider and work on narrowing it. Couldn't agree more, Franklin. And, you know, listening to what you were saying there, I was thinking through, you know, all the challenges we have at the urban level. And, you know, we've talked at length about this red state, blue city kind of phenomenon we find ourselves in. And I, I hate to see the, the, the restaurant industry itself break apart along those lines, too. And again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but it is a, quite an accomplishment that so much of the IRC, Independent Restaurant Coalition's agenda items got put in this bill and, and then the political capital that comes with it. So clearly something to keep, continue watching and, and we'll, be, we'll be staying on top of it. Franklin, we talked at length on this podcast, uh, certainly post-Obama era, you know, we talked about the EEO-1 forms for corporations to have to share uh, their diversity numbers and diversity practices and pay bans. We talked at length about all this kind of stuff. And those those regulations were um, suspended uh, by the Trump administration. But it appears that a bunch of companies have continued on not only compiling that data, uh, but publicly releasing that data. Uh, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post this week that more than 30 major companies, Wells Fargo, General Motors, Target, Chevron, Verizon, all kinds of companies are publicly coming forth with that data, really at the behest of you know city officials that oversee public pension funds that are heavy investors in a lot of these companies. They, the, the article cites the New York City comptroller. What do you what do you see going on here? Do, companies here are are basically the Trump administration rescinded that rule, and companies are acting as if the rule still in effect. What's your take on that? Well, the rule was rescinded. But the way the court battle worked out, they still had to collect the data for this year. And so since the EOC is not going to get access to this data and be able to enforce based upon it, folks have come up with some clever and creative ways to still get their hands on that data and hold companies accountable. Now, as you mentioned, some companies are voluntarily releasing that information. Good for them. We also had companies around the time right before this was going to go, the EO1 form was going to go into effect that did self-audits and kind of leveled their workforce based on the findings of those audits. There were a bunch that did it. Nike, for whatever reason, jumps to my mind as one of the first that did it at a high price, I do remember as well. But we've got some creative approaches here, right? So if you look at the spokes of the wheel, like the pressure points on corporate brands to change their behavior, policymakers are one of them, but investors are certainly another, Joe. And in this case, you have you have investors, pension funds kind of calling for this. You also have uh, local policymakers, you know, via New York City, right? Then another spoke of the wheel, so to speak, calling upon companies to release this EO1 data so that they can see that they are being equitable in their pay and promotion practices. This all kind of tracks back for me to this NCSL panel we talked about, I think, in last week's podcast show, where there's a lot of very smart people in this space. We're discussing what can be done at the state and local level in 2021 to advance pay equity based on gender, but also race and and other factors for that matter. And they had a whole bunch of different policy items. But at the very end in the questions, the former Obama EEOC chair, who was one of the panelists, said, look, at the end of the day, if you really want to change this space, we need 
pay data transparency so that we can look in and we can score and judge based on race or other factors that pay is equitable. And this Obama era EA1 requirement was intended to do just that. We know that this is where these policymakers want to take this over the longer term. And this is just one kind of bump in the road or one dot, I guess, on the on the scatter chart of heading that direction. Yeah. And I think companies are going to continue to find themselves in the crosshairs of different groups. Franklin, you and I were talking earlier, Darden has been uh, once again attacked uh, on the diversity front by One Fair Wage and our, our buddy Saru Jayaraman. What's going on there and how does that relate back to what we were talking about? Yeah, it it directly relates. And it's funny, like Saru and company and rock, you know, kind of, kind of gone off and done different things here recently. They've been on, you know, they've been really active in the political space. It's been a while since they've started kicking around corporate brands. I mean, they do in their talking points all the time, but filing complaints and taking legal action against brands, they kind of drifted away from that. They're back and it's a rather, rather uh, novel approach that Saru is, uh, is taking in this circumstance complaints at the EOC alleging that the tipped wage is inherently racist and sexist because the largely female and workers, for instance, you know, have to put up with uh, harassment to to get their tips, and so inherent to the tipped wage is essentially an EOC violation. That's the argument. She calls this complaint or series of complaints, a move that's really, quote, about proving a really new and important legal theory, end quote. New being the operative word of this legal theory. So this is a cute play by Rock. They'll probably get some headlines. It'll probably be tossed in about three seconds flat out of the EOC. But it shows where we're going to see increased activism, right? We're going to see more and more activism kind of in this space around equity and discrimination, whether it's pay or promotion or otherwise within companies. And you can expect that we're going to be revisiting some version of the Obama EO one form in a variety of different ways, not only in potentially a Biden administration, but potentially some versions of that at the state level as well. Yeah. It's interesting how all these kind of data points have all kind of come together. We're talking about the EEOC. This is where the, the, the one fair wage complaint was filed. So it is interesting to see companies just saying, hey, look, you know, we're going to go ahead and make this stuff public anyway. There are a lot of reasons why. You know, I got shareholders that want to know. I got employees that want to know. I got customers that want to know. And they want to be able to try to, the best they can, make progress to protect themselves. One more point, Franklin? Yeah, the, I would point out that employers oppose, largely oppose, the Obama EO one form because they said it, that it basically didn't take enough factors into account. There was no way to factor in really seniority or education experience or you know other other types of measures that would indicate or impact why someone may or may not be paid more than another and the EOC's approach was essentially like put the data in there let's see how far you are for R and then we'll go account for those those differences right and you know they didn't even have industry baselines to work off of or just general economy baselines so employers you know, argued all along and, and would argue now that activists are using very blunt tools here to try to to show or demonstrate equity or, or lack thereof. And so I think companies are going to continue to bump up against that challenge. Those that in earnest, and I think many of them probably fall in this category, 
that want to ensure that there's equity and they want to set up metrics to track that and address some of those issues. There's not necessarily good tools out there to do that in a very effective way. And quite quite frankly, one that's not going to, if we can just be honest, open them up to a ton of legal liability if, you know, if they're moving to take uh, steps to address this. And uh, but they haven't gotten there yet. So, you know, there's a whole bundle of issues kind of packed into this that even companies that really want to be leaders in the space and do the right things. It's not as easy to get there as just using the the Obama era EO1 form and going, oh, we got a problem here. And oh, we got a problem here. So I did just want to flag that, Joe, um, because that is important. And that's that's part of this ongoing debate. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with COVID activities on the Hill. Franklin, I know the House passed their version of the HEROES Act uh, late yesterday. What is, what's in the bill and what's the, does that bill have any future in the United States Senate? Uh, no, it doesn't. And it doesn't, so it doesn't really matter that much. But um, as we discussed in the earlier segment, it is a slim down bill from the initial DIM package. They've cut it down to $2.2 trillion, still too far away from the Republican version, which is much slimmer. And despite negotiations all week between the White House and and the Treasury Secretary and Nancy Pelosi, a deal could not be reached. You know, you would think this probably ends things through Election Day, but who the heck knows? You know, all the predictions around this have, have been off. You would have thought we had a deal a month ago. So things have fallen apart again. The, the big thing to note for the industry is the House version did include the House version of the Restaurants Act. So that's a big pot of money directly thumbnailed for the industry. Unfortunately, the House version, unlike the Senate version, excludes corporate chains and only makes those monies available to independents, as we discussed in the earlier segment. And, you know, will it, do you think it'll even get any kind of acknowledgement or fanfare in the Senate at all, or just, just go right in, right in the drawer? No. Sure. Probably exactly how it's going to happen. Franklin, we talked a lot on the podcast about insurance. You know, early on, we talked about insurance companies, you know, getting getting out of coverage based on, you know, cataclysmic COVID-19, you know, blah, blah, blah. And some companies have uh, taken umbrage with that. And one of our dear friends, Outback Steakhouse, owned by Bloomin' Brands, uh, in a couple of Western states, is fighting back. Yeah, most of the insurers have clauses in their coverage that essentially diffuses their liability in in the result of a pandemic or a government shutdown. There were a few companies, insurance companies, that had provisions that were different or hadn't updated their policies. And a number of those companies, insurers, have been tested by all kinds of different employers, you know, retailers or hotels. So there's, there's been a number of these little cases proceeding. And of course, if any one of them is successful, then everyone that has that exact provision in their policy is going to go press their advantage in the courts. This is probably the largest restaurant group that we've seen doing just that. So we have 100 Outback locations in the Southwest and into California in five states, and they are uh, they are pursuing litigation against affiliated FM insurance company in California federal court. And they are claiming that they're due monies because their particular policy, the exemption essentially doesn't doesn't apply, number one. And number two, 
that the insurer was uh, up to some funny business, you know, passing out talking points and, and blanket rejection of claims and that that was improper. So it'll be important to see how this case proceeds, at least in that court with this particular insurer, this particular policy that will have ramifications for for others that, that fall in that category. And uh, the Small Business Administration and the administration overall looks like they're going to start forgiving some of these PPP loans that we've been talking about for many months now. Well, there's there's a lot of discussion this week on um, what's happening with the PPP forgiveness applications. Essentially, they've just been piling up and the SBA hasn't been processing them. And after all the, the press accounts and discussion this week, the SBA announced here at the end of the week that they will, in fact, begin processing those forgiveness applications. The period, if you'll remember, for forgiveness was extended to January 1. So, you know, technically we're still in the period where you can, you know, spend the monies and you don't have to submit your forgiveness applications until basically the end of the year. But the SBA is sitting on tens of thousands of forgiveness applications. They announced they'll start processing. Franklin, um, news out of Amazon, you know, huge national employer, hundreds of thousands of workers. They released some news this week that they've got about almost 20,000 workers that have tested positive for COVID-19. Yeah. And this is kind of an eye-popping figure approaching 19,000 workers that have tested positive or presumed to be infected. So you are exposed. I I assume that means you're exposed to someone that had tested positive and maybe you had symptoms and maybe you didn't get a test. You didn't test positive, but you quarantined for the appropriate period of time. This figure also does not include third-party delivery drivers. So you're primarily talking about kind of warehouse workers and workers in whole food locations. And that's 1.44% of their workforce. So in in the greater context, it's not like a huge percentage, but that's still a pretty big percentage. Anyway, to think of one company has had 20,000 workers and Walmart also has said that they, they have not released numbers. This was like a comprehensive data dump. But Walmart has said that they've had somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% of their workforce has become infected. I think this strengthens arguments around premium pay and hazard pay payments to frontline workers with with these types of of numbers coming out. Well, you know, I I don't want to sound cavalier and dismiss anyone that has come in contact with this disease, but 1%. You know, it's still a lot of people we're talking about, a lot of people going through a tough time, but it's amazing that it's not higher. I mean, you know, one out of a hundred people in a a big plant or store like that, what that tells me is that those companies are are, are working hard to protect those workers. I think one out of a hundred is a pretty good performance by those employers. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's all context and how you, how you see it. Franklin, last COVID related item uh, this week a lot of data and statistics coming out of New York City about the state of the restaurant industry there and where they find themselves. This is interesting. So the the state comptroller essentially has run the numbers to see what the impact to the restaurant industry has been the during the pandemic. And the numbers essentially line up with what the National Restaurant Association and the Independent Restaurant Coalition have been reporting. And we flag this because this is obviously, this is state comptroller office, not an interest group, right, that's making an argument for relief funds. And it would be interesting to see other states and cities release these same sort of numbers. But I think it very much bolsters our ask, if you will, with federal, state, and local policymakers for 
for assistance. So just to give some, kind of some some quick highlights, um, the state comptroller found that nearly three quarters of those employed in New York City's restaurant industries found themselves jobless at the height of the pandemic. And 40 and within that actually number, 60 percent uh, were immigrants and 44 percent Hispanic, 20 percent Asian. So essentially you have and, and we know this, we've seen this in other contexts that this is disproportionately falling on minority communities. And that's that's the case within the restaurant industry workforce. Also that, and this was an interesting number to me, but 43% of restaurants and bars citywide had applied for and received outdoor seating permits. And so the city basically fast-tracked these outdoor seating permits. So even with all that, the overall impact to the industry in New York City is devastating. Nearly... Um, half, the state comptroller found that nearly half of all bars and restaurants could be permanently shuttered within the next six months. And this is basically in alignment with the IRC NRA release data. It's a pretty, pretty damning picture and, and hopefully it'll, it'll help spur some, some action. Well, Frank, it's pretty interesting, you know, for those that, uh, that listen that are subscribers to our uh, publications, our top items publications that come out weekly. You know, you'll you can go back in November and December of last year, January and February of this year, and the, the New York City Council and the city government seem to be on a very focused warpath against the restaurant industry. We were talking about all kinds of different employment things and right cause actions and all types of just nickel and diming activities out of the city council in New York director of the restaurant industry. And all that has ceased, has gone away. You don't see anybody doing that anymore. And here are the statistics that say basically half the industry is going away. There's no anti-industry activist politician that has the temerity to, to go after us right now. So it's interesting what a change of scenery and environment it will do for the political agenda facing the industry. Frank, I'm pivoting to wages issue we've been following for a long time for a lot of different reasons. The, these different set-aside minimum wages for Uber and Lyft drivers. Seattle kind of finalized their process this week. Yeah, and this is a, an industry-wide, essentially minimum wage for independent contractors. This is the closest thing to sectoral bargaining that I you know, basically see in this country. And it is 16... 39 an hour is a new minimum wage rate. You know, this is notable because for you, as you mentioned, we, we can see this spreading across the country, which impacts not only drivers, but delivery drivers, right, which impacts the industry. And it also impacts this broader conversation around kind of sectoral bargaining. So anyway, Seattle becomes a second city behind New York City to pursue this. It will not be the last. And it also, Franklin, you know, affects the, the marketplace to attract and retain employees. If, if there's a, a guaranteed 1639 minimum wage for sitting in my car and driving around all day, you know, maybe a hardworking job in the restaurant industry isn't as compelling. So we're competing, you know, the industry is competing against that as well. So it's, it's a multifaceted conversation comes to those, to your point, those sectoral wage rates and, and so forth. Franklin, speaking of which, union we talked about a couple times recently on the pod, the United Food and Commercial Workers, uh, kind of kicking it in gear and uh, had a big victory this week. Yeah. And uh, rewinding the tape, it was four to six weeks ago that they announced a big national campaign to win hazard pay. Um, this was, they launched their campaign just as retailers were gearing down hazard pay payments. And this is the old R Walmart network springing back to action. They held actions at Kroger and Giant this week 
and one, a concession with Stop and Shop, the retailer will now pay 60,000 workers a 10% premium or essentially bonus on the hours they work between July 5th and August 22nd. So they'll get a lump sum payment on that for that period. And up until July 5th, like basically in the spring, Stop and Shop had been doing hazard pay, premium pay, and they geared that down. And now the UFCW is, is winning this for their members. So that's a big win. And they will, uh, I suspect, continue this drumbeat at the other retailers. And, uh, you know, we keep an eye on this for a number of reasons, Joe, but um, obviously this could spill over into other segments. Well, not only did they do a great job of, of recouping those those hazard pay dollars, I mean, there are other pieces of that agreement with Stop and Shop that I find fascinating that, that Stop and Shop has agreed starting next year to observe a moment of silence on Labor Day and Workers Memorial Day and openly support, you know, advocate the, the benefits that union membership has to its associates. I mean, they really, I mean, they extracted blood out of Stop and Shop. I, I, find, I find those pieces of the, the non-monetary pieces of the agreement much more fascinating than the pay. Franklin, switching to uh, labor policy, Labor Department have proposed a new rule this week regarding kind of the paperwork that uh, unions are supposed to file with the agency. What's going on there? This is an ongoing fight and a back and forth between Republican and Democrat administrations. When I was at the Labor Department, this is one of the key initiatives I worked on, which was pulled back during the Obama year. So Labor Department's put forward a, a, a rule change that essentially changes the requirements for the LM2 forms. And it, this really affects the largest unions. It, it requires more detailed accounting of how unions spend their monies. Unions don't like this. They don't like, you know, having to kind of disclose it opens them up to criticism you know but there there's a public interest here in that these are democratically elected organizations and there needs to be a mechanism for the membership to see how their their funds are spent and so that's why this exists and it's it's a constant kind of tug of war between different administrations so right here at the end the Trump administration is rolling out this new this new rule it'll take some time to get finalized and um I suspect a new administration would immediately throw this in the can. The Trump administration wins a second term. It will uh, probably go into effect. Switching gears, Franklin, back to uh, back to the U.S. House. Ed and Labor Committee approved legislation that puts a lot of money back into apprenticeship programs, but we might not see we might not see that come to fruition. What's going on there? Yes, yeah, so four billion over five years to expand apprenticeships. And this is under the National Apprenticeship Act, which you know we've talked. We've had Rob Gifford from the NRA Ed Foundation on here to talk about their program that that has gotten funding via this act. It would also do a number of other things, codifying things within the Labor Department. Republicans have opposed the bill because they believe it does not provide enough autonomy to employers. This is another kind of push and pull in the apprenticeship program. Apprenticeship programs traditionally are created and run by unions. The Trump administration has pursued a path that really sets that up so employers are running these apprenticeship programs. And so that's kind of the, the tug of war here that we're seeing play out in the House Ed and Labor Committee. Additionally, Democrats, they did not include language requests by the Trump administration that allow funding to be funneled through the White House. So yet again, it's kind of this tug and war. Also this week, it was announced that NRA Ed Foundation got a big old pot of money. I don't have the exact number in front of me. That's, that's good. We have encouraged folks to take a, a look at the, the NRA apprenticeship programs, maybe an appropriate time to have Rob Gifford 
come back and, and talk about it again. This is something the industry would be well served to work collectively on and in concert with the hotels so that we can increase mobility within the industry and help kind of link some of those ladders in the career climb, if you will, and, and help the economic mobility of our workers. So it is an industry priority. It should be an industry priority and it's something everyone should be looking at to see if when it works for them to participate in these broader industry efforts. Well, I've known Rob Gifford for over 25 years, and I can safely say that nothing makes him happier than somebody handing him $9 million. It's, uh, it's probably a big day, big day in the Gifford office uh, when that came through. So congrats to, congrats to NRA and the Ed Foundation for uh, securing those funds. Franklin, switching gears, we um, reported on the California, latest California board diversity initiative. The governor finally put that to bed and sign that legislation. Can you remind our audience what's contained in that bill? Yeah, and I think we mentioned it in an earlier segment. It, essentially, this would require that publicly traded companies have to have a racially or ethnically diverse individual on their board or gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Uh, this follows in the post year, the woman, right? That year, that wave, there was a law introduced that essentially mandated that a woman have a seat on all publicly traded companies boards. We also, I would note, Joe, I think it was last week, maybe the week before we did the segment on the NCSL panel where the activists that kind of led the charge the year of the woman and got a bunch of sexual harassment legislation, play all these, all these pieces of legislation have already said in 2021, they're going to pick those up and kind of expand those working with the Black Lives Matter movement to include racial equity as well as gender equity. And to me, this this is a prime example of that. They essentially gone back and did the same thing they did after the year of the woman now to apply to race. So I uh, expect to see more of this. Yeah, that was last week's podcast. We talked about the NCSL. So if people missed that, it's, it's probably a good segment to go back and get your, get your arms around and be pretty predictive about what's going to happen in 2021. Franklin, uh, switching gears again, uh, let's go back to the activism we talked about UFCW, we talked about you know their activity with Stop and Shop. But uh, my old my old alma mater at Darden finds itself back in the sights of our friends Saru and effort made you know focused on HQ and then a, a rally in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia outside of one of their restaurants. Tell us, kind of walk us through what happened and why they're connected. Yeah, so for many years, a restaurant opportunity center ran a corporate campaign against Darden, and they basically more or less lost interest in it, which probably means the funding dried up for that campaign. And they, they focused on other priorities. Saru spun off from the Restaurant Opportunity Center, the One Fair Wage campaign. She has since kind of left the Restaurant Opportunity Center, now her new little home for political activity and protest is One Fair Wage. One Fair Wage is picking back up that mantle and going after Darden again, which probably means they've been funded to do so. And they did two things this week. One, and we mentioned this in an earlier segment, uh, I'm pretty sure. But one, they dropped a complaint at the EOC, basically saying that the tipping policy, utilizing the tip credit, is inherently sexist and racist and, and induces sexual discrimination, and the EOC should intervene. Interesting out-of-the-blue legal theory that probably won't go anywhere, but Saru is in the business of testing legal theories. And then in conjunction with that, they coordinated a protest at a Philadelphia Capitol Grill location, you know, advocating for a $15 minimum wage, some other worker protections, talking about the tipped wage. And then, you know, of note, a few local prominent Democrats were there 
in attendance participating in the protests. We saw this with the fight for 15 during the Dem presidential primary. That is probably, of all of this, the most notable thing and the most troubling thing over the longer term is these rock protests, now one fair wage protests, 10 years ago, were just a bunch of, you know, activists with pots and pans and an inflatable rat. And rarely would any kind of legit mainstream prominent elected official of any party or any any brand, you know, affiliate with it. That is no longer the case. And so that creates issue management challenges going forward. Yeah, I was I was going to add to that. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked forever about the life cycle of an issue and, you know, things that people scoff at as crazy and far-fetched five years later are right on their doorstep. And so, yeah, you say Saru's in the business of, of testing legal theories, but one, one, one's going to stick. So, soon enough, one's going to stick somewhere and, and get that, that winder back. And so you, you still got to pay attention to this stuff. Switching gears to delivery, Franklin, governor signed legislation putting some new restrictions on third-party delivery platforms. Yeah, this is this is one piece that earns broad support across the industry. You know, and essentially what, what California is saying is third-party delivery services have to have formal contracts with restaurants before they advertise them on their platform. We had Del Venturini on here. The end of last legislative session, and this was one of her chief complaints, is that delivery platforms are ripping logos off of websites and just putting them up on the platform and purchasing the food and delivering it um, unbeknownst to the restaurant, essentially. And so the restaurant were getting complaints from customers that the food was cold or you know whatever else. So there were all kinds of issues here. Um, one, the restaurant couldn't assure quality control because it wasn't designing the the menu and the takeout, you know, clamshells or whatever to basically be sitting for 40 minutes. And so the food quality, there was a fall off there that they were upset about. And there were also liability concerns in terms of chain of custody of that that food and potential foodborne illnesses, et cetera. So, and they were paying more for it. Yeah, the customers were bearing the commission prices instead of the restaurant. And so the, the, they were getting a substandard product at, at you know, significantly more, more cost, correct? Correct. And so, so restaurants have been up in arms about this. Of the, of the different things, the, the fee caps are only supported by some segments of the restaurant industry. This is one that is broadly supported by basically everyone. And so it is now law in California. I expect we're going to see this in other places, um, other places soon. Yeah, that's that's. And then the other small development this week was Denver, Colorado, preliminarily passed, approved an ordinance to cap delivery fees at 15 percent, which is pretty standard for the next 120 days. So we continue to see this issue is continues to cycle around. And in 2021 legislative sessions, I bet it's going to be in a bunch of states. So um, two quick packaging issues to end the scorecard, Franklin, uh, both kind of interesting in their own way. Uh, why don't you start with New Jersey? Uh, what they did is pretty remarkable this week. I guess is the proper word, remarkable. Yeah, and California kind of – so New Jersey and California, even though California's failed the final week of legislative session, both fall in the same category, which is basically there, there's been broad consensus and desire to do something on packaging for years now. It just – has fallen apart right at the final days. And the governor in New Jersey has wanted a win on packaging for a long time. The legislator sent a bill last year. It was too weak. And so he vetoed it. And so this had been like in the pipeline forever. It's not something that just kind of popped up. And so New Jersey's legislation is one of the more sweeping in the country. It puts a ban on a lot of different single use items. 
including paper items, polystyrene, single-use plastics. So, but there are kind of some silver linings here. One, New Jersey cities is one of the most active, probably up beside California, for having their own bag bans or bag fees or it's been a compliance nightmare for retailers in New Jersey. And so for that reason, the grocers actually ended up coming out in support of this bill because it put a state preemption in place and basically wipes off all those local mandates and creates a a, a state standard. Once that happened, it was basically more or less a done deal. The, the, The coalition that was kind of opposing this started to fall apart once the grocers bailed. The restaurant industry, for its part, did a good job to get some some wins, and those include, most notably, an exemption for the paper bag ban of restaurants. So paper bags are banned at grocers and other retail locations, not at restaurants. So restaurants can still utilize paper bags. It's, it's a, a key win. And then uh, the, the other notable thing is there, there's a small business exemption from basically the whole thing in there. I think it's under like half a million in sales, which probably is not going to apply to a lot of restaurants, but probably important to a lot of, a lot of other uh, employers. The other thing that the industry was able to get here was an 18-month runway for the effective date. And the way the legislation is written is apparently there's a little wiggle room that the state agencies could push back that effective date further if the pandemic stretches on, right? So probably not the best idea to be passing single-use bans during a pandemic when the CDC has expressly told us that we should be using single-use plastic bags and other single-use items to prevent the spread of disease. But this is not going into effect for 18 months. The assumption is that the pandemic is going to be resolved then, and it, it gives the industry and everyone some runway here to sort it out. So Probably not considered a win, Joe, but not necessarily as bad a loss as as bad as it could have been. But still, I mean, going after paper bags, man, that's that's a whole you know opens up a new front. But uh, somebody in violent agreement with you, Franklin, that this is not the time for this type of stuff. Uh, Mike Dewine in Ohio uh, is looking at uh, preempting cities from doing these types of things. Correct, Dewine, like kind of Kasich, and you know. They're relatively moderate repubs. They don't go out of their way, I think, to get the cities, right, and pass preemptions and jam stuff down down the city's throat. So this was a little bit out of character. But, you know, to your point, Joe, he cited the fact that, look, you know, the CDC has called for this. This is not the time. And so it's a preemption for one year. So it's it's interesting. You have Ohio and, and New Jersey essentially going in completely opposite directions on this issue. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more more of this. Uh, the, the timing is bad. I can't believe that anyone is addressing this issue right now. Wait six months, you know. And, and for for context, I mean, Dewine is a is an old fashioned conservative, not kind of the, the new wave of quote unquote conservatives. And you know, traditional old fashioned conservatives, you know, we're, we're locals know best. And you, real conservatives would never preempt local governments. Has that been? That's a that's a new development in the last five or 10 years of conservatives preempting uh, you know, cities. So it's not surprising that DeWine would do it that way. But it is interesting that um, you know, he said, no, you know, even as principled as he is, he's like, we can't take a risk on 
this kind of transmission. And, and so, you know, to his credit for, for doing that, he's a, I think, you know, goes with his record during this COVID thing of being one of the more responsible public characters in, in the country during this whole process. So anything else to add on the, uh, the packaging side, Mr. Coley, you want to bag it for now? That's all we need for now. Look at you. Yeah, that's all. That's all we need for now. I've had enough coffee this morning. I can, I can get a couple of quips in. All right. Well, that's the scorecard for this week. All right. Well, another another week, another pod. Uh, Franklin, again, going back to where we started at our, uh, our Muffso panel next week. Um, are you going to treat, as we do this panel together and go back and forth, are you going to treat Joe Kefauver the way that Donald Trump treated Joe Biden? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, have you ever known me not to interrupt you? I've just got a lot to say and you don't. So I expect that every 24 seconds, I'm going to have to talk over you just for the for the sake of the people, Joe. Am I going to have to say, will you shut up, man? How many times am I going to have to say that? If you just stick to that, I'll be very impressed. Well, on that note, we will uh, talk to you all next week if you don't tune into our, our Muffso panel earlier. Tuesday, 2.45 p.m., Joe. Tuesday, October the 6th, 2.45 Eastern Time. Uh, Franklin and Joseph on the Muffso panel. And you can see our faces, not just our voices, our pretty faces. You got to put that in too, Joe. It's a real seller. I think it's already in. I think I just, I think we just kept it in. So we'll, we'll talk to you then. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and have a great weekend.